Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are on day three of our Q&A. Glad you could join us. Hey, oink, oink. Uh, yeah, I think I can get to that question. In fact, someone else asked a similar question that I think is going to come up today. Uh, Keith, good morning. It is a day to rejoice in. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is on the throne, reigning and ruling over heaven and earth. This world is not spinning out of control. It is not left to chance. Jesus is crushing his enemies. He's taking care of his people. It's a good day. So rejoice. Be glad. Take another sip of your delicious coffee or whatever your preferred beverage is. It's a good day. It's a good day. Hey, Ken. Glad to have you with us. Hi, Caitlin, Juan, Lewis, Alfred. Great to have you all along. All right, so let's get to it. Uh, Q&A. And as I'm scrolling down to get to the next question, I want to remind you, Cross to Crown is doing a Blake White sale. We have a few left. Going to run it for a couple more days, so go to crosstocrown.org. We have some of his books on sale for $5, and all orders have free shipping if it's over $20. All right, so here is a question from Biblical Theology in 30. There we go. Uh, I'm sure you have covered this, but how do we respond to this objection to the New Covenant Theology view of New Testament ethics? And here's the uh, objection. Bestiality is not repeated in the New Testament, therefore it's permissible according to New Covenant Theology. Well, uh, no. <laughs> This, yeah, this is a common, uh, common question for us who hold to what's called New Covenant Theology. And the thing is, the, there's an assumption in the question, since uh, we, I, for instance, reject the Old Covenant law as New Covenant law, meaning I believe the law of Moses, the commands contained in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and so on, those were part and parcel of the covenant God made with Israel, and they were not uh, required of any other nation. Uh, the law of Moses was exclusive to Israel, including the Ten Commandments. Those were exclusive to Israel. So uh, people who, from the, especially from the Reformed covenant camps, who, uh, who want to hold on to the Ten Commandments, uh, they think they have a gotcha question for those of us in NCT and say, well, if you don't see the old covenant law as, uh, as binding on Christians, then bestiality must be okay because there's no prohibition in the New Testament against bestiality. But that cuts both ways. There are all kinds of laws. For instance, uh, You've probably heard people talk about this before. There are prohibitions in the Old Covenant um, against wearing a shirt like this. This shirt that I'm wearing uh, has different kinds of fabrics in it. This is not a pure wool short shirt or pure cotton shirt or anything like that. Uh, it's got different kinds of materials. Well, that was forbidden in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, I should say. Does that mean that law continues today? What about all the laws that talk about uh, how to treat your second and third and fourth wife, where polygamy was allowed, it was legal in the Old Covenant, and there are 
commands about how you're to treat your second, third wife. I'm sorry, how to treat your first wife if you take on a second, third. You know, none of the folks that believe the Old Testament law is our law bring those forward. So that's one thing is it you can't just simply pick and choose uh, some laws of the Old Testament to apply and some laws not. On the flip side, in the New Covenant, porneia is sin. Porneia would be any sinful, any sexual activity that's not with your wife. So one man, one woman, no goats. So that that's how I would respond uh, to that. So it doesn't doesn't hold water. It's a it's a lame uh, response. But they they sort of think they have a have a gotcha. Um, is this uh, related to what I just said? Honest question on the old covenant. If they weren't binding uh, to anyone but the Jewish people, why does it seem like God judges Assyria, Babylon, etc.? Yeah, good question. Um, so we have to distinguish between the law that was given to Israel and God's standard of righteousness that is binding on everyone. And there is a distinction to be made. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul distinguishes the law of God from the law of Moses. He doesn't call it the law of Moses, uh, but he's talking about the law, which would be the law God gave to Israel. And then he says there's a law of God that is not the same as that law. In, uh, In Leviticus, in chapter 18 and chapter 22, we see virtually the same list of commands uh, that are given to Israel, especially in terms of sexual immorality, as justification for why God is spewing out these other nations from their land, the Canaanites. So what I draw from that is there are sexual sins that are uh, offensive to God for everyone. And that's why God says, I'm going to spew these these nations out of their land. But that statement in Leviticus helps us to see that these are offensive to God uh, always. We just, it does, it, you can't be consistent to just go through the law given to Israel and apply them to the New Testament. Some would argue the laws apply unless the New Testament abrogates them. And again, what about the laws of mixed threads or planting your potatoes next to your corn or that kind of thing? So that that's a, probably requires a lot more time than I'm going to give it here to answer all those questions. But generally speaking, Oink Oink, I would say there is a law, there is a, there's a standard of righteousness God has for all people. And it makes sense that there would be commands to that effect in both the Old and the New Covenant, but you can't just take the old covenant law and be sure that every commandment is universal pork for instance right that kind of thing so i hope that uh, uh hope that answers your question all right let's go on here uh i think you've talked about this before but could you please talk about the role of systematic theology in our study of the word and the proper use of commentaries other books by men how should we integrate or should we our understanding of the text with other people's thoughts on the same passage. 
It has been said, I'm not sure by whom, that if we study the text and come to an understanding of the meaning that no one else has thought of before, that we're probably wrong, which made me think of the question. Thank you for the live streams. All right, so I, as you know, if you've been following me at all, I'm, I'm very wary of systematic theology. It has its place. I did a short series called uh, Biblical Theology, Intro to Biblical Theology that you can watch if you want to uh, get a little bit more on this. And if you become a partner, a CrossCon partner, uh, you have access to the New Covenant School of Theology course. We have an entire course devoted to answering this question. Um, the short version is systematic theology runs the risk of imposing a system on the text. Someone asked a question uh, on another video. I'll answer it here. Hopefully he'll watch this. Um, you know, why am I down on Reformed theology? Uh, I think he used the word hostile. Why am I hostile toward Reformed theology, covenant theology, and so on? Uh, and the, the answer is because systematic theology of all sorts draws theological conclusions based on inferences and presuppositions and then imposes those on texts. So, for example, we just finished our study of Hebrews. Hebrews, in multiple places, but especially chapter 6, gives severe warnings to people who walk away or uh, fall away from the faith. And Reformed covenant theology, systematic theology, will teach on those passages, and instead of warning you not to fall away, will explain why theologically it's impossible for you to fall away. So let that sink in. The Holy Spirit inspires this letter to warn people about falling away from Christ, and theologians teach those passages not warning anyone, but explaining why it's impossible for you to fall away if you're part of the elect and so on. Do you, do you see the problem there? The Holy Spirit says, here, if any, be warned, don't walk away, and theologians say, don't worry about it, you can't fall away. No, that's... Maybe a slight oversimplification, but that's my concern with systematic theology. So it, the, the, the role of systematic theology would be if someone is teaching error, for instance, someone comes along and says, um, you know, Jesus wasn't divine. He's not God. All right. Well, to now go through and look at all the teaching of the scripture about Jesus and draw the conclusion that he is God, if you want to call that systematic theology, fair enough, you can certainly make the case as you compare all the teaching about Jesus that he is God. The, the, it doesn't, the scripture doesn't anywhere come right out and say, this is God, that Jesus is God. It doesn't use those words. But the Bible certainly teaches it. The word was God and the word became flesh. That's Jesus. So you don't need systematic theology. I, and as a general rule of thumb, I, I'm not a fan of systematic theology because it, even if we don't intend to, it is so easy to give systematic theology priority over what the Word of God actually says. So be very, very careful. Uh, and just 
Uh, commentaries, other books, my men, can they be helpful? Sure. But we just, for some reason, we don't seem content to read God's word. Uh, a friend of mine texted me the other day and asked if I had any good resources for the fruit of the spirit. And I wrote back and said, Galatians 5. And, you know, he gave me the, a certain emoji back. I'm serious though. If you want to learn the fruits of the spirit, you're going to be much better off just meditating on and pondering Galatians 5 than reading somebody's writings about it. Can we learn from men? Of course. But my concern is, is proportion. Most people I know, including most pastors I know, spend way more time reading the writings of men than they do truly meditating on the Word of God studying the word of God. Uh, and as far as this question, uh, if, you, if you study the text and come to an understanding that no one else has thought of before, then you're probably wrong. Uh, yeah, that's what traditionalists say um, once their tradition is firmly established. For instance, uh, this is a favorite line by Reformed theologians to people like me, New Covenant Theology, uh, saying... You know, this hasn't been taught for, it's only been taught for the last 50 years, but you think you've come up with new understandings of the law, for instance. Well, that's exactly the argument that the Catholics used against Luther and Calvin. You guys are coming up with new interpretations. Our tradition, the Catholics said, goes all the way back to the apostles, to the founding fathers. And the reformers said, well, we don't care how far your tradition goes back, we're basing our understanding on God's word. So you can call it new if you want to, but we're appealing to God's word, not tradition. And then Reformed theology becomes the tradition, and they say to anybody else, if you think someone has found, if you think you've found something that hasn't been taught for 2,000 years, then you're arrogant and whatever. Okay, but whose interpretation? I can take you to three different Reformed authors, commentators that have different perspectives on most things. So who's right? So the whole argument is based on an assumption. You should be careful. It is, it is true. Wisdom would say, if you can't find anybody else in church history with this same understanding of the text, that should give you pause but at the end of the day, you've got to say, well, I, I'm, I'm going to go with what I think the Scripture is teaching, regardless of what other men say. That's my view of Romans 11. I can't find anybody that has the same understanding of Romans 11. And I've searched and searched and searched because I'm not particularly comfortable that no one else has seen this before. Now, maybe they have, and I just haven't discovered it. I hope that's the case. But at the end of the day, I just don't care what other men have written. I've got to follow my conviction on what the, what the word of God says. So, uh, yeah, don't, don't be too worried about that. All right. Uh, another line of questions here. What would you recommend someone to do if they're looking to join a home fellowship like your own? I know, oops, that's wrong. I know there are website online that show typical churches from nine marks gospel coalition, but how could someone seek out a home fellowship? If there are none in one's area, what do you suggest they do? 
And then a follow-up, do you have any updates on how scalable the home church model is? Have you had to cross that bridge of there being too many people? Uh, Good questions. Um, And if you're newer around here, I did a whole series on the church uh, a few months ago, some months ago. You can find that on YouTube or on our website, crosscrown.org, where I explained what we're doing here in our home fellowship. Um, I get asked that a fair amount. Um, I don't know. The answer to the first question, how do you find a home fellowship like this? I don't know. That leads into something I'm planning to talk to you about next week. Uh, when we get done with Q&A, uh, I want to let you know we've got some changes of direction for Cross to Crown and New Covenant School of Theology. And uh, part, of the, part of that change of direction for me personally is I want to help uh, prepare and equip leaders for home fellowships and help them get started uh, and continue. So uh, I, I can't point you to any resources at this point, but having been at this over a year now, I'm very excited to help others start. There's a, there are a couple that I've been able to work a little bit with their leaders to see them get going. Um, and the goal is to put together a map. And uh, if people want to sign up and say, hey, we have a home fellowship like this in our area, they could do that. So I'll tell you more about that next week. But uh, yeah, right now, I just I don't have any good resources for you on that. Um, as far as scalability goes, uh, we haven't, we're getting close. We had a, a Sunday a couple weeks ago or so that we were pretty tight in my living room and kitchen area. And I thought, okay, if we uh, have a few more families come, we may have to think about mul- multiplying uh, sooner than, than we expected. Um, so yeah, stay tuned is all I can say on that. Uh, we'll talk about that as we as we go. All right, uh, seemed like there were a couple of things here. Let me, let me pull these up. Uh, I want to be fair to those who already put questions in previously, but I don't want to just ignore what you're saying here either. Uh, uh, Peter says they usually try and get around this. Oh yeah, you're responding earlier. That's a good point. Um, Oink, oink. Any advice on faithfully disciplining and teaching toddlers when they obey your instructions, do it with a bad attitude? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Yeah, that's hard. When they... When it's obvious to you that they are doing what you instructed, but their heart is far from you, right? Um, so what we did with our kids on occasion, especially one of them, one of my children was uh, was pretty proficient at this. Um, her, she's smart and she would toe the line and do it, but you could just tell she, she her heart was rebelling. So we would begin to give impossible tasks uh, so that she would disobey so that we could discipline her. Cause I, I don't think it's right to discipline if there's not direct disobedience, but when it was obvious, the heart was opposed, uh, then we would just set up impossible commands so that we could discipline that. The other thing is whining, crying, um, throwing a fit that that's sin, that's discipline. So, um, if they threw, if they went ahead and did what we told them to do, but they threw a fit and complained about it, we would discipline for that because we would tell them, uh, you know, that's part of the command instruction we're giving you is, you are not allowed to throw a fit. You're not allowed to grumble and complain. 
And if they did, then we would uh, discipline for that. So uh, that's that's the short answer uh, of how to do that. All right, let me see if I can get to one more here. Uh, maybe two. If someone is physically unable to regularly attend church of any sort for any given period of time, whether that be a few weeks or the whole life, what would you advise they do to make up for this roadblock? Most people will suggest watching sermons. I know you're not a big fan of that, and I don't find that to be adequate. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, it really does come back to our understanding of what church is. I mean, even this phrasing unable to regularly attend church. Um, we can certainly learn by watching sermons, live streams, right? Hopefully some of you are learning as I teach. So we can learn plenty. There's, there's like never before in history, there's a, a great number of resources for learning. But church is not attending a service. It's not just learning. It's fellowship. It's praying together. It's encouraging one another. Um, so I would just say keep seeking the Lord and keep seeking opportunities. Find it, it doesn't have to be a service. There's no, there's no such thing as a church service in the scripture. There's no call to worship and benediction and one man, none of that. That's, that's leftover Catholicism. Uh the church gathering is much more in the, in the scripture. It's much more like a family gathering than it is our traditional service. So I would say, you know, try to get that mindset out of your thinking and seek Christians to come and meet with regularly and, and stop thinking you have to go to a building to attend church, but find a group of Christians, preferably with some elders, because you, you do need that kind of accountability um, but yeah, watching sermons online and services online, that's not church. That's, that can be edifying and it can be, you can learn, but it's, uh, it's, it's not the gathering as we see in the new Testament. All right. I got time for another one here. As you frequently noted, the primary purpose of Hebrews was to warn Jewish converts not to revert to Judaism. Is there a message there for us today as Gentile converts? Or do we view Hebrews as more of a deep exposition of Old Testament prophecies, the coming new covenant, all sufficiency of Christ? For example, if there were a growing persecution of Christians, would this warning extend to us not to abandon our faith? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the um, uh, one distinction that might be helpful to make is the, the New Testament was written for us, but not to us. Right? None of the letters were written to you but they are written for you. So we have to look at the original occasion, the original intent and, and, and situation that the authors were addressing and take that into account as we study and learn from them. But then there are principles to be applied there. So we're not under threat of Judaism moving us away from the faith at least not in large numbers. There, there may be occasions, there's messianic movements, for instance, that I think can get close to that. And maybe in certain parts of the world, but here in the West, here in the U.S. anyway, I don't run into people who are tempted to abandon the gospel for old covenant ways very often. So that's, that specific concern is just not prevalent today. But certainly there are plenty of others 
So it may not be going back to something, but absolutely any, any religion that is trying to add to the sufficiency of Christ and the gospel or move you away from that, the, the warnings of Hebrews would apply. You find your sufficiency in Christ, your atonement in Christ, your forgiveness in Christ, your allegiance is to Jesus Christ. We are in the new covenant, not in the old covenant or any other religion and covenant. We have to stay there. And anything that would be moving us away from that, uh, we have to explain to somebody, if you do, if you walk away from this, then you're you're walking away from the gospel, and that's very, very dangerous. All right, uh, we're going to leave it there. We'll come back tomorrow and do this at least one more day, and depending on how it all goes, maybe we'll jump into next week. I still want to keep Friday this week for for the men and do our manhood and proverb study. Uh, but if, uh, if there's enough questions, then we might take some time next week as well. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day in the Lord, and we will see you tomorrow. Take care.